Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Gross. It gives me great pleasure to welcome co-host Russell Hanby to this, as Russell puts it, the pre-penultimate edition of What's Making News for 2023. Welcome to Viewpoints, Russell Hanby. Thanks, Henry. Hello. How are you today? Pretty good. What do you think of that title that you made up? Pre-penultimate. It means pre-penultimate. Pre-penultimate. <laughs> yeah, the one before the one before. Yes. The one before the one before the last one. So we've got two more editions to go for 2020. It's been a great year. What's been the highlight for you this year? Not necessarily, I'm not talking viewpoints, but um, what's been your highlight in 2023 on, and we've still got a couple of weeks to change it. <laughs> uh, oh, I suppose moving to address after nearly 40 years has been my big uh, change for this year, the big move, you know. Has it been successful? Yes, yes, quite successful, yeah. I've kept getting on to seven months now, the time's certainly wow. gone quickly. Did I you... remember we talked about the future, how we had to put the house on the market and all yes. that. Yes, it was quite uh, quite a bit of work for you there. Um, now... Um, have you got a radio station down there? You're running karaoke? I mean, you are still working with Casey Radio. You've got all the oldies in the retirement village, you know, joining in your sing-alongs? <laughs> not, just, not yet, no. <laughs> do they know you're in radio? Oh, yes, some of them do, yes. Yeah. I'm keeping a bit of a low profile at the moment on that, yes. Oh, you haven't got them all listening in to Casey Radio because... You know, if your ratings go up substantially, your gratuity will be doubled. Oh, well, that's good, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll look forward to that, yeah. You, you were a former mathematician, weren't you? Well, I was a math teacher at one stage, yes. Yes, um, so <laughs> what's two times zero add up to? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wonderful. That's what it amounts to, isn't it, Ted? It does amount to that. Now, you didn't have any homework this week, did you? No, a clear run this week. Did you tell your wife you were free to do anything she wanted you to do in the <laughs> round the place? Uh, well, no, not I didn't actually, so I could have, couldn't I? <laughs> you could have, you could have. So no homework, um, but we've got a really interesting week. Um, this is an interesting one, Russell. Um, a, this happened in this is in the Herald Sun this week. A self-serving way to profit union supermarket call. The powerful retail union has called on supermarkets to use the savings they've made from axing checkout staff to reduce prices on the shelf with new research showing Australians feel ripped off by self-serve checkouts amid the cost of living crisis. You surprised yes. by that one? Well, not really. Uh, I think that uh, we know the prices haven't come down generally. And uh, anyway, they did a survey of the thousands, not a very big survey, but I suppose enough to get an idea, found that the vast majority believe that supermarkets are using self-serve checkouts to force customers to do more work and cut their own uh, costs without improving service or reducing prices. In fact, 67% believe that supermarkets use self-service checkouts so they can reduce the number of staff without improving services. Now, only 24% think self-service does reduce price, whereas 70% degree, uh, disagree. Now, the Shop Distributive and Allied Employees Association, the SDA, mm-hmm. says, says that if supermarkets are cutting their costs, they have a moral obligation to reduce product prices or to employ more human checkout operators. Now, in, in, in October, the food inflation was, 40, was 5.3%. That was up from 44 in August. And that compares 
with inflation, which is actually reduced from 5.2 down to 4.9. So, in fact, in October, the food inflation was sort of ahead of the regular inflation. Now, 53% of the survey prefer humans to operate the checkouts. And uh, Woolworths does say, on the other hand, that costs of buying fruit, veggies and meat had fallen generally. So, uh, But uh, I think we've all... Uh, gone into supermarkets where there's very few checkout operators anymore. Yes, they say there that the option of that is still there, but the queue can be very long if you want to get in it. And um, uh, no, clearly. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that would be a great homework option for you, wouldn't it, to do some research on just have the... Because um, Woolworths also say their overall staff has increased, of course, uh, exactly what they mean by that and in what areas we don't know but it'd be interesting to do some to dig in and see whether their profits are going up uh, and that's correlated to less checkout staff because staff are a big cost item to any organization aren't they yes yeah they are they're probably the main, one of the major costs apart from these transportation delivery and all that other stuff that they have to have you know mm. but but I don't think you know it's one of these things Russell technology marches on and we, 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 we take hold of it and use it one way or the other you don't normally go back uh, you know once they invented cars you never went back to horse and buggies except for a joyride um, I can't see uh, supermarkets or anybody going back to um, an, uh, a pre-technology era where you had more people on checkouts when they can have it automated by yourself. Can you? No, I can't see that happening. Maybe one might try it as an experiment one day, but uh, you can't see it happening generally, can you? You really go back when uh, they bring in these uh, modern things. What do you think of it when you do the self-checkout thing? Well, I don't mind. It's, uh, like, sometimes it's quite convenient, if, particularly if you've only got one or two items, you know, to zip through. Yep. And uh, they made it a bit easier too. Instead of having to put down the type of cherry tomatoes or whatever it is and you don't know yourself, uh, they're all barcoded now to make it much easier. So I think it's getting simpler, actually. Yeah. But I do, you, do, you do feel for the checkout uh, operators, don't you? Many of them are de- redeployed, of course, aren't they? Oh, yes. You know, um, I... I... When they're not too crowded, I prefer to go through the the manual checkout um, just so that the people that have got the jobs keep the jobs, really, because I, um, you know, I think uh, there's two sides to that uh, that story. And sometimes, and you're right about them being simpler, I find that too, but that can be a pretty crowded area too and then the machines don't always work. They've always got an operator in there, something goes wrong and it locks you out or whatever, that still happens and that can be quite infuriating, can't it? Yes. And at first I thought it was rather funny that we had this self-serve that you need someone there to often explain to everyone how to work it, you know, or, or invariably it refuses to go on and they've got to press the code to get it working again, don't they, you know? Yeah, it's quite, uh, it's quite an irony, quite an irony in all that. I wonder also, Russell, because um, they've got more cameras there now, has um, theft increased because of self-serve? Because in theory, um, if you're handling it, not a checkout person, there's scope for people to slip something in or not slip something into their bag that they should be scanning. Um, and p- some people do do that, obviously. 
Yes, and people used to, like when it was easier, they used to put a different product name. Like if they were getting yes. some sort of fruit, they put the, the, they might have got the more expensive one, but they put it through as a smaller one. And there were very few checks and balances then, but I know they have cameras, but I think this, uh, they're getting onto that, I think, with these barcodes uh, products, but I don't think that it does beat the security of going through with a person taking each item out, does it, for you? No. What, have you tried that one of putting down the cheaper bananas rather than the dearer ones. No, I haven't, no. <laughs> You've heard about <laughs> it, though, have you? Well, sometimes, as I said earlier, it is hard sometimes to work out exactly what type your thing is, uh, but, but now it's much easier yes. with the, uh, oh, the making yes. it easier. And if, yeah. yeah, and if you're in one of those um, uh, manually controlled ones, and you've got a particular mandarin or something, and they go, which mandarin is this, or which apple? And you go, yeah. oh, I, I didn't check. Are they red? Yes, they're all red except the <laughs> granny smith. <laughs> and then you've got to call somebody up, and they get them to run down, or you do. It can, it can be quite time-consuming. Now, the second one, Russell, we're back into the field of education, aren't we? Yes, we are, from the age and the heralds. In fact, all the papers carry this yes, story. Yes, uh, Nearly half of 15-year-olds fail to meet benchmarks. Almost half of Australia's 15-year-old students are failing to achieve national standards in key areas of math, science and reading, and the nation is now more than four years behind the world's top-performing jurisdiction in maths. And in Victoria, uh, there's a lot of statistics in this. Uh, I'll try to summarise some of them. In Victoria, the percentage of low performers in maths, that is those needing the knowledge to adequately participate in the workforce, is as low as 26%. The, that's the minimum amount of performance, they say. Now, the PISA results, that's the OECD mm. Program for International Student Assessment, uh, that's... Uh, puts Australia back in the top 10. They were a bit out of that before COVID, but they reckon that it's not due to our good work so much as the uh, there's been a de decline in other countries. So that's sort of a bit of a backhanded compliment, that one. Yeah, well, now, Russell, the, that's, that's an interesting one because on the other hand, they'll slam us for being, what, up to four years behind Singapore. We're going backwards that way. But um, And they would say, well, that's because the argument would then run, well, they're doing a better job of it. But if we're actually doing better than others... Oh, that's because they're declining. I mean, <laughs> you know, you've got you to give, be reasonable. You can't have it both ways. No, that was a bit of a, a, a black mark, I think. No, I, I, think, I, I, th I think there's a little bit of ungenerosity with that one. Yeah. Anyway, as you say, Singapore did was the highest performer and uh, in maths, science and reading, uh, roughly in the 500s compared with the 400s in their scale. Um, now, math, science, reading performance has dropped apparently since the 2000s here in uh, Victoria anyway, or Australia. And Australia's uh, more than four years behind Singapore in maths, three in science and more than two in reading. And just over 50% did achieve this national proficiency standard in maths, science and reading. Now, uh, this, this, uh, they point out some differences. The socioeconomic differences highlight inequity with 15-year-olds lagging behind wealthier counterparts by five years of schooling. 45% uh, of these, those people in the uh, poorer backgrounds cited that. Uh, so what do you think of that? Uh, we've talked about that before, the socioeconomic effect, haven't we? Yes, we have, and we've often mentioned that um, when you take that into account, the private schools are doing no better predominantly than public schools. Um, so from that angle, the fees we pay and the perception of it, um, the benefits have to be 
obviously non non academic, don't they, for people to be going there, or they're deludedly thinking that um, they are making a difference. Uh, but no, socioeconomically, uh, and and that's a big thing here. Our our our, our people that are more disadvantaged in terms of uh, wealth uh, and property, etc., seem to be doing worse and the gap's widening and that's been going on for quite some time and th that speaks to how we resource and organise our education system, I'd say. Yes. Another interesting fact, they did find that foreign-born students perform better in maths and reading than Australian-born students uh, and um, I think that's been the case for some time, that fact, hasn't it? Um, yes. Uh, now... Uh, I looked up the other paper and they tried to give reasons. Someone suggested, well, the schools that allow mobile phones or put it the other way, schools that ban mobile phones in the classroom, etc., seem to do better. They've measured that uh, academically. COVID, of course, has a big disruption. Many students didn't really like the support or from the teachers. They felt they weren't getting as nearly as much. Uh, and bullying's been going on, whether it be cyber or otherwise. And, of course, we heard about these teacher shortages and uh, people wanting to leave the profession too. And also teachers in the secondary area that... Uh, aren't qualified in the subjects they're teaching. So there's many reasons, isn't there? Oh, look, it's a, it's, it's a difficult... Look, anybody who says that the teaching profession uh, is not in a difficult position at the moment, extremely difficult on many fronts, um, is deluding themselves, Russell. Look, look obviously, people are in, in certain places, you know, our... our, our our school staff, our bureaucrats, uh, they're doing their best. Uh, the problem is this has been coming a long time and I've said this elsewhere, um, Russell, uh, in other pieces. Uh, governments across Australia, I think, for quite some time now have not been paying as much respect to the needs of the teaching profession as they should have, particularly public education. And we're now in a position where it's like turning around the Titanic and uh, it's going to be, it, it's a long journey to get our profession back to where we once uh, had it, uh, where people are clamouring to get in and we're happy with the results. It's, it's, it's a long-term a long-term goal and there's a lot of pain in, in, in between. And yes, you're right. Getting back to the results, though, what I thought was interesting, I looked at maths, the mean scores by gender, and uh, in maths they've been declining and uh, the gap between boys and girls remains approximately where it was um, going back um, to 2003. So we haven't made much progress in getting the gender gap in maths closed. No, where males are generally higher than... Yeah, um, And in reading, it's the other way around, isn't well, it? Well, in reading, it's the other way around, yes. Um, there's a decline in reading both genders, but the gap is significantly um, in favour of girls performing much better than boys. And uh, the literacy area is a big concern on how we can lift literacy rates for boys because that's not looking good. Science, though, is a bit different. They're very, very close together. It's almost a marginal difference. And in the last couple of years, what we've seen is a reversal of that trend for boys and girls um, uh, that uh, that um, there's been an uplift in the, the, the results. It's actually trending the other way. So science isn't all bad at all. 
maths is is pretty poor and reading also if you look at those PISA results. So it's a fascinating fascinating set of uh, data and of course it's like all data. Which way do you want to look and uh, in in how you interpret it, Russell? And as you said at the beginning, yes. You could put the headline, Australia's, you know, four years behind the top-rating countries in PISA in 15-year-olds, blah, blah, blah. Or you could say Australia's doing much better than the OECD average. Now, both, both both statements are correct. Now, we'd better get moving on. We've got ourselves obsessed with education but then we're both we're both passionate about education um the next one russell uh, an old remedy renewed scientists have taken a step back in time to understand how nature makes antibiotics and discovered old can be made new again to treat deadly superbugs we do love good news in medic medicine and science don't we we do in fact most weeks we have some breakthrough don't we yes uh, anyway, this is research by the Monash University Biomedicine Discovery Unit, BDI. I always never cease to wonder about all these great titles of research places and that. They all have big uh, little monikers, don't they? The Biomedicine yes. uh, BDI and the University of Tübingen, is that, or Tübingen in Germany. They have unravelled the origins of ancient antibiotics created by nature. Now, the goal was to gain insights that could be used to engineer future synthetic antibiotics to ensure a sustainable defence against the next generation of superbugs. Because, as we know, the uh, superbugs seem to be uh, mm. getting across the common antibiotics these days, aren't they? Mm. Now, um, now they studied a particular class of antibiotics that, is, that has its origin in soil bacteria called glycopeptide antibiotics. Mm. And apparently they still use these as a last resort in treatment of antibiotics antibiotic-resistant bacterial infections. Uh, one name is uh, Van Kamysen. Now, Professor Max Kreil of the Monash BDI, he wants to understand how nature produces antibiotics so we could do it ourselves. And in fact, the World Health Organization says that antimicrobial resistance is one of the main public health threats globally now, mm. where, where apparently the antibiotics of yesterday aren't having as great effect as they used to. No, we've overused them is one big reason, isn't it? Yes, it is. Mm. So that's that's welcoming news. You might uh, do you catch the bus only? No, no, do I catch the bus only? No. I, <laughs> do you drive in the bus only lane? No, no, no. no. You might yes. like to tell our listeners what's going on here, Russell. Well, then, well, but, uh, bus o- <laughs> the age bus only lanes aired as gridlock quick fix. A network of dedicated bus corridors is the quickest and cheapest way to address Melbourne's transport woes, and the state government should start building one within five years. Victoria's infrastructure advisor says, "Yes, apparently uh, over a third have never caught a bus." despite being within 400 metres of a stop. You wonder why not? Well, infrequent services, slow and complex routes and limited operating hours seem to be the main reasons. Now, three cities of Australia, Sydney, Brisbane and Adelaide, they use what they call bus rapid transport. That provides fast, frequent buses in dedicated lanes and stopping at sheltered stations, a bit like trains. Mm. In in fact, they're so frequent you don't even need a a timetable in some of these. Infrastructure Victoria says that the bus network needs an overhaul here to be an alternative to cars uh, being congested on roads, especially in outer areas uh, that don't have trains or trams particularly. And they need rapid transit 
network. They reckon it can be built within two to five years, quicker and cheaper than rail projects. They also recommend building bus rapid transit corridors by 2028. That would provide more services, faster routes, and buses be given traffic light priority. Perhaps you could also lop a dollar off the fare to entice people there. And now they think that often the roads are quite congested. They quote Punt Road, you could hardly put a fast bus lane there. So they suggest, mm-hmm. why don't we build along road corridors or land corridors like Hoddle Street and uh, you could lose down, uh, disuse railway uh, easements, etc. So um, the network reckons would cost about three and a half to four billion dollars and take over eighty-three thousand passengers by twenty thirty-six. So it seems a, a reasonably good idea if they can streamline the bus network. Yes, of course. In as you alluded to something there, Russell. Uh, in some cases, to get that sort of lane going, the infrastructure on roads is such, and the the development along the roads is such that it would be very very difficult you know, to, and challenging and costly to create extra lanes for buses. And if you took away existing lanes, it would just cause more congestion on the existing lanes. So good idea, but um, let's see how that one pans out. There's lots of good ideas. The very fast train has been one that's been around for decades, hasn't it? It gets trotted out every time uh, there's a state election where they're running out of ideas on transport. They throw it out there. Uh, but then we're being too cynical. Now, this... Um, this uh, spot's an interesting one. Have you had a live bomb in your backyard for 50 years, Russell? No, I haven't. <laughs> Someone I've has. Heard, I've heard of World War Two people having hand grenades and that, uh, but not back this far. No. A live bomb believed to have been an ornament in a Welsh garden for more than 100 years has finally been detonated. Sean and Geoffrey Edwards of Milford Haven were shocked when police knocked on their door to say the 29-kilogram mm. ornament, which they thought had no charge, had been spotted and the Ministry of Defence would be called. Tests showed it was live and it was removed for detonation. The naval bomb was apparently from the late 19th century. Geoffrey Edwards said, I'm so sorry that the poor old thing was blown to pieces. <laughs> Just as well it was blown to pieces, not in his backyard. I don't think he'd have been too wrapped if it blew his house down and no, him up as well. Although he, mate, he wouldn't want his shovel while he's digging the garden to hit it, would you, or anything like that? <laughs> well, he'd probably, if he survived it and he wasn't there at the time, he probably would have had a ready-made crater into which he could have built a swimming pool, but uh, <laughs> not, not really how we would want it. It's quite amazing it's been there for so long and nobody's spotted. Well, so that takes us out on the pre-penultimate edition of What's Making News. Next week is the penultimate one. Yes, we can call it the penultimate next week. Yeah, it's, a, it's one of those words, isn't it? You sort of, uh, it's, it's a nice word to say, even though it's a bit difficult, penultimate. <laughs> penultimate. It's a, it rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? That's right, the one before the ultimate, I guess. Yes, the one before the ultimate. Listen, you have a great weekend and we'll catch you next week for the second last edition of What's Making News for 2023. All right, look forward to it. Russell Hanby, co-host for uh, What's Making News, great, uh, great person to have.